0: Dad, (laughs) do you like this hotel? Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. Over 25 years now, you can read all of my written work at that website, quipster.net, q-w-i-p-s-t-e-r.net. If you like the show that you're about to hear, here. I do encourage you to check out the other podcast that I do specifically covering films of the 1990s, as well as newer films that were inspired by the movies of the 80s and 90s. Really a companion podcast to this one, but covering newer films. You can find the link at quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the long, long-awaited episode on the 1980 film Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. This took me about four months of research to do. I can't believe I used to do this show weekly, and there were a lot of big movies that I covered there, but for whatever reason, The Shining just happens to have the most writing about it. I mean, there are more articles written today than films that are out in theaters right now that are coming out, so there's always new explanations, new tidbits, new theories about what The Shining means and they just continue to come out and it's just hard to really cover a film this old with so much that has been written about it over the years and and try to feel that I comprehensively am capturing it all within the body of a 30 minute review. This actually will be longer. This might actually take up to an hour. So this is going to be the longest episode (laughs) of this podcast for sure. Now, The Shining is an R rated movie. It does have disturbing, violent content and behavior, bloody images, graphic nudity, and strong language. The runtime, well, it depends on which version you watch, but the runtime for most people who are watching it today is 2 hours and 26 minutes. The cast, the main stars are Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Danny Lloyd. Supporting roles going to Scatman Crothers, Barry Nelson, Philip Stone, and Joe Turkle. The director, as I mentioned, is Stanley Kubrick, who also co-wrote the screenplay along with Diane Johnson. Now, I do want to mention before I begin that this is a film history podcast primarily, although I do give my personal opinions toward the end of the show, which makes it kind of a film review podcast as well. But there are hundreds and hundreds of different theories as to what The Shining is really about underneath, what Stanley Kubrick was really about They all are kind of predicated on the notion that Stanley Kubrick is some sort of genius and that everything that he does is intentional and that everything that is in the frame is something that he, in his encyclopedic knowledge, deliberately put there for the purpose of sending us messages as to what the film is really about. While those theories are definitely interesting, and I do encourage people to go check out a lot of those because some of them are pretty compelling and some of them are <laughs> completely off the wall, that's not really what I do here. I'm more word of God kind of analysis. Whatever Stanley Kubrick says or Diane Johnson says or the actors say is what the film is about, I tend to give more credence to than some person who is just studying this film who is not involved telling us what it's all about based on the fact that they've made a few, two or three different connections within the course of the movie. And that's not to say that there are inaccurate reads of this film. Part of the fun is actually trying to decipher really what it's about for yourself. The origin of The Shining, obviously if you know your history of The Shining, you know that this was based on a Stephen King book. And Stephen King got the idea for his novel, The Shining, back in 1974. That's when he moved with his wife, Tabitha, and his toddler son, Joe, out to Boulder, Colorado. And he really was going there because he wanted to explore a new setting to write about. He couldn't just do continue to write stories about being living in Maine. So they had kind of a second home out there, but he still was lacking inspiration on what he wanted to write. So the Kings decided that they were going to do a little bit of a getaway. They decided to go about an hour away. They stayed at this historic Stanley Hotel in Estes Park in Colorado. It happened to be entirely vacant because it was the day before the winter closure. It was an eerie experience for Stephen King. The bar that he went into was entirely empty except for the bartender, who happened to be named Grady. They dined that evening in the hotel restaurant. They sat at the only table that was not completely covered under plastic and overturned chairs. There was a band. They were wearing tuxedos. They were all playing for an empty dance floor. Very creepy, at least to King. And they returned to their presidential suite. That was room 217 in the Stanley. And King decided he was going to take a shower. He peeled back the shower curtain that was surrounding this claw-footed tub And when he did that, somehow this image popped in his head that he he imagined that there would be a woman lying murdered in it. King felt, after all this experience, that this really was kind of the perfect setting to develop a, a horror story, perhaps in the vein of one of his favorites, The Haunting of Hill House. Now that night, King experienced a nightmare, and it involved the hotel's fire hose chasing his son down the hallway. And this triggered a memory in his mind. He had this unfinished story called *Darkshine*. And it concerned a psychic child whose dreams could become reality. This was uh, an homage kind of to Ray Bradbury's The Velt, where children use technology to create virtual environments that can turn real and deadly. King reimagined Darkshine. Instead of the powers lying within a person, the powers could be triggered by a place. And in his mind, he wanted it to be set at an amusement park. That could operate kind of like a storage battery for negative supernatural energy and it would feed off of this psychic child's power now king abandoned the story eventually because he was struggling for a plausible way to try to keep the family trapped in this amusement park it seemed like it would be an easy place to just walk out of however this empty hotel gave him new life to this dormant story so he began to reconceive his idea and he was going to formulate it like a Shakespearean tragedy, the family being hired as caretakers for an empty, completely isolated Rocky Mountain hotel called The Overlook, and it would be during the snowy season, so they would be completely trapped and alone within the confines. A young Danny Lawrence, about a five-year-old kid, he's gifted with ESP. His father, Jack, is a tempestuous alcoholic. His mother, Wendy, is completely racked with guilt. Over what's going on in the family now Jack hopes that going to this hotel would provide the opportunity to finish writing a play one that he hopes will be successful and that will rectify his dreary life and the whole hotel has this history of evil including Grady a former caretaker who slaughtered his wife and daughters in the hotel some years back the Torrance's experience supernatural occurrences while they're there and they're enticed by the ghosts of the overlook to repeat its evil history As King wrote this, he was inspired by the lyrics he heard to John Lennon's or the Plastic Ono Band's Instant Karma, the lyrics specifically we all shine on. And so he retitled his story The Shine to reference the boy's powers. Now, around this time across the Atlantic, the director, the great director, Stanley Kubrick, he was growing worried. Barry Lennon had been released. It was a lesser commercial and critical success than he'd experienced in some time. He thought that the lesser success might actually threaten his substantial filmmaking freedom for the future. He thought he needed a commercial hit to reestablish his place as somebody worth investing into. The Exorcist, Jaws, those were recent smashes of the horror genre, and that rekindled Kubrick's long-running desire. He wanted for a long time to make a film so scary that it would come with a money-back guarantee for anyone who could watch it all the way to the very end. Now, Kubrick did hunt for ideas of what to do, and he stumbled on a 1974 psychological detective novel called The Shadow Knows, and it was written by Diane Johnson. Now, Kubrick decided to read more of Johnson's work, and he especially admired her critical reviews of books but The Shadow knows is something he thought maybe he could make into a movie. He really liked Johnson's ability to evoke dread, anxiety, paranoia, fear. And so Kubrick decided to get on the phone and he started calling Diane Johnson. And they started conversing at length about a lot of topics, none specifically involving making films, but they talked at length about politics and about books. And then eventually, after about a week, he decided to fly Johnson to London to discuss a collaboration possibility. Now, getting back to The Shining, prior to publication, Producer Circle bought the film rights to The Shine, then sold it to Warner Brothers, and Warner Production Chief John Calley, he sent a galley proof to Kubrick, who was under a three-year picture deal with Warner, and Kubrick considered it the first worthwhile book John Kelly had sent him to that date. This was an ingenious psychological study of a family slowly going insane together. While reading it, Kubrick mentally cast Jack Torrance with Jack Nicholson. Nicholson happened to be somebody that Kubrick had long courted to try to play Napoleon in a never-made passion project. And Nicholson, he had been wanting to work with Kubrick for a long time. He agreed to sign on without even reading the King book. Now, although the contract that King had signed with Producer Circle required him to provide a screenplay, which he did do, Kubrick never read it. He wanted to go an entirely different direction with King's book and wasn't interested in a straight adaptation done by King. Now, one of the things Kubrick felt was that evil should not be within a hotel. Evil should only exist within humans. King saw ghosts more like damned souls, but Kubrick viewed them more optimistically. He thought that they were proof of existence beyond oblivion. So that should make people happy, even if their existence may be torturous In the end. Now, during this time, a Double Day exec, Double Day was publishing King's book. One of the executives pointed out to Stephen King that the title might be problematic because a shine was derogatory slang for a black person who shoeshines. And his story's hero, Dick Halloran, is a black cook. So some might accuse it of being a bit racist. So King decided okay, he would modify the title. And he came up with The Shining, even though it seemed a bit awkward and unwieldy. And it had already been used as a title back in the 1960s for a book by Stephen Marlowe. Now Kubrick observed that one of the main things he wanted to change from the book was this ending. Because the book ends with the blowing up of the hotel. He felt that that was just too cliche. So instead of Jack sacrificing himself as the hotel's boiler explodes... Kubrick was going to have him killed off by his wife, Wendy, in self-defense, while Halloran, in King's book, The Hotel's Cook, who returns to the hotel at the last minute to save the day, Kubrick was going to surprise audiences, even those who read the book, by revealing that Halloran is actually allied with the ghosts, and he's going to finish off Wendy and Danny by killing them in the end. He thought that there should be an epilogue after this, Ullman, the manager of the hotel, was going to give a new caretaker a tour. As they're giving the tour, you would see the Torrances at a dining table, but they would be completely unseen during the tour because that revealed that the Torrances are now ghosts of the Overlook. Kubrick ran this idea by King. King protested quite strongly. He thought that audiences would abhor seeing characters that they cared about dying for such a cheap twist. Instead of applauding in the theaters, they would be leaving the theater calling for Kubrick's head on a platter. Now Kubrick did take King's advice to heart. In his first official script treatment, Kubrick laid out the basics for how the film would ultimately play. A lot of what you see in the film actually came from this original treatment. Kubrick wanted a flashback sequence of Jack beating a student at his college that he taught at out of jealousy because the student had a life of privilege and he wanted special treatment. Privilege that Jack had always been denied, that becomes kind of a theme within the film. There were also more Indian motifs in Danny's visions. Grady's first name in the original treatment was Daniel instead of Delbert or Charles, as he's described as in the film. And of course, the ending was completely different. Kubrick retained the twist where Halloran is actually evil, but Wendy and Danny would ultimately prevail by killing Halloran. And there was this new epilogue that Kubrick thought of that... Would show Jack existing within a photograph taken at the Overlook's New Year's party picture from 1919 in the hotel's historical scrapbook that plays a big role in explaining the background of the hotel, in King's book especially, but also in a lot of the early scripts. Now, to flesh out the screenplay, Kubrick connected yet again with Johnson. Johnson happened to have taught Gothic literature at UC Davis. And so, this being kind of a Gothic horror story, at least a modern one, He thought that she could lend a lot of background information as to how to make this really connect with classic gothic horror. Johnson read Keek's book. She wasn't a huge fan of it. She thought it was pretentious. It was very predictable. But she did say it was undeniably scary. So she agreed to help. She stayed in London. She roomed there while frequenting Kubrick's Hertfordshire estate to develop script concepts. They watched horror movies together that really sparked a lot of ideas of what they wanted to do with the film, and they also wanted to avoid a lot of the cliches that they were seeing in a lot of those movies. They also examined movies that starred Jack Nicholson. They looked at a lot of his performances. They noted that he actually really excelled as an actor when his energy level was high, and that's what they really wanted to achieve with his performance in The Shining. Now, Kubrick especially wanted to explore with Diane Johnson the psychological origins of why people fear. What makes us all so afraid? Now, Johnson shared Freud's 1919 essay on the uncanny, and that delved into repressed memories as triggers for fear. Kubrick also observed Kafka's straightforward approach to fantastical happenings. He also liked H.B. Lovecraft for never explaining mysterious elements within the course of a story. They also referenced Bruno Bettelheim's 1975 work specifically on fairy tales, the uses of enchantment, and also Frank Kermode on endings, exploring romanticized dreams and memories. They concluded that the Torrances were under fear throughout the story because they felt powerless, and that audiences would especially feel fear because the notion of a father murdering his family was innately terrifying. Dividing King's book into eight acts, Johnson and Kubrick wrote separately, and then they met periodically to merge ideas. They discussed returning to the original notion of Halloran saving the family that was in King's book. Johnson said, though, horror movies should still at least have one person who was killed, and she suggested it would be a real twist to have Danny be the one who's murdered. The end could just be a shot showing a child's chalk outline in the hotel with Danny's ghost laughing and playing near it, with the deceased Grady sisters. Kubrick said that was impossible. Diane Johnson thought that he said it was impossible because he was very tender-hearted toward Danny and he didn't want to see a child murdered, but it possibly had more to do with Danny's invisible friend, Tony. In King's book, he was really Danny in the future. In King's book, Anthony is Danny's middle name, and he's kind of the older version of Danny, telling him things that haven't happened yet. So Danny really couldn't die if he wanted to retain that aspect of it, although he didn't necessarily do that in the finished product. They continued with King's ending as a placeholder until they thought something better would emerge. As they developed The Shining, Kubrick specifically wrote Jack's part while Diane wrote Wendy's part and fleshed out her character. Now Kubrick contemplated he wanted to do The Shining as his first U.S. location shoot since 1960's Spartacus, but... Eventually, his hatred of flying as well as his desire for secrecy left him opting instead for something close to home, London's EMI Elstree Studios. He still had crews go out and film in America. Scenic American hotels were photographed all over the place by production designer Rory Walker. It inspired a massive soundstage recreation that was done specifically with the interiors representing a lot of elements found in Yosemite's Awani Hotel while Mount Hood, Oregon's Timberline Lodge was recreated as the hotel, as you would see from its exterior. Montana's Glacier National Park, that provided the opening aerial shots. Now, the sound stages were not really large enough to build a full-scale hotel, so they filled the space economically. They kind of had to do it piece-by-piece, jigsaw style, to cover the entire soundstage, but it wasn't all continuous. And the layout didn't, in the end, make geographical sense, but Kubrick surmised that ghost stories need not be logical. Photographs and television programs that would be within the body of the film, those were on loan by Warner Brothers. archives, because Kubrick was always conscious that he wanted to save money. Now, King's Wendy, from the book... She was described as blonde, a former cheerleader. She was gorgeous. She was also smart and independent. Now, Kubrick considered actresses who might match well against Nicholson's physicality in that regard. Initially, Lee Remick and Jane Fonda were the ones he had in mind. They thought that maybe Wendy should experience repressed sexual dreams within the hotel, maybe a masked ball orgy that tied into King's many allusions to Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death, which was a common motif from the novels. Nicholson, though, suggested Jessica Lang should play Wendy, somebody with whom he could really explore Jack's sexual side and really unnerve audiences with his uh, more twisted sexuality. Kubrick, though, said no, that would be a kind of woman that would not tolerate Jack's abuse in the end. And he returned to his treatment notion of Wendy as being kind of more of a common housewife and an old-fashioned country girl, So he said, no, Shelley Duvall, who he admired in Robert Altman's films, should play Wendy. Duvall really exuded kind of this mousy vulnerability. Her Texas accent, her unconventional appearance would probably make it more plausible that not only would she tolerate Jack's abuse, but that Jack would also find her less attractive over time, not really being the kind of woman that a man like him deserves if he has a desire to live a life of privilege. Kubrick eventually removed all those notions of having this mass ball orgy and all of the Poe references because he returned back to the Kafka-esque approach of showing rational ways of depicting fantastical events. He wanted to keep everything very grounded and realistic. They advertised in various markets, specifically in the Midwest, for photos of boys aged five to seven, no acting experience necessary, Kubrick really emphasized the Midwest portion because he wanted to the boy to have kind of a realistic accent that would fit somewhere between Shelley Duvall's and Jack Nicholson's. Now, the most photogenic candidates would come in for an interview, and their memory would be tested, their responsiveness. They would study their voice, their personality, their stamina, their demeanor. Then among those, they would go to Hollywood, and they would undergo formal auditions. And then eventually, the five finalists flew to London to meet Kubrick, And ultimately, Kubrick selected five-year-old Danny Lloyd from Pekin, Illinois, for exhibiting exceptional concentration. Reportedly, Lloyd invented the device of talking to this invisible friend through his wiggling finger. And he also came up with, during the production, Tony's voice after being asked if he could do any of the voices to try to differentiate his from Tony's. Now, because British child actor laws forbade children from appearing in horror sequences, and also Kubrick felt very protective of Danny Lloyd while he was there, Lloyd didn't know he was in a horror film. He believed he was in a drama about a family living in a hotel rather than a scary movie. He didn't find out too well into the production that there were some things he was not meant to see, including Halloran's death. Now, speaking of Halloran, as I mentioned, Halloran is black in Stephen King's novel, but Kubrick initially did not care about that. He initially sought a white actor to play Halloran, Slim Pickens specifically. Ben Vereen, who who was interested in playing the role based on the book, he publicly accused Kubrick of changing the character to white, thinking that the story was somehow too heavy for blacks. Slim Pickens did pass because he had an unpleasant experience working with the very demanding Kubrick on Dr. Strangelove. But Pickens' agent did recommend that they look at Scatman Crothers. Crothers' agent started lobbying, to little avail, to try to secure the Halloween role. Eventually, they worked their way through Jack Nicholson. Nicholson happened to have acted with Crothers on three prior films. And so he put in a good word to Kubrick, and Creuthers was eventually offered the role three weeks prior to filming. Now, believing that special effects of the day would be rendered as farcical, Kubrick replaced the book's attack by topiary animals with an imposing hedge maze that was behind the hotel. And with that notion, Kubrick did find an ending that pleased him. He liked this fairy tale-like resonance of Jack finding escape through the mythical maze's literal dead end. Elaborate miniatures were built of the hotel to plan the cinematography, the lighting, the camera movements, and Kubrick here wanted especially to use Garrett Brown's Steadicam extensively, with very long takes capturing kind of the dreamlike magic carpet effects as it glides within the hotel and the maze. Brown's latest model could shoot very low to the ground, about a, a foot and a half off the ground if it needed to, and that was ample to provide Danny's perspective at times. A wheelchair-mounted steady cam would follow Danny tricycling around the overlooked corridors. Now, the steady cam weighed approximately the same as Danny Lloyd, so it was fairly heavy, and Garrett Brown had to go through multiple, multiple takes. Multitudinous takes... Carrying this thing around, running full speed, he compared manipulating this heavy equipment while in motion as to competing in the Olympics while playing a piano that's in motion. Now, after production began, Nicholson started getting kind of annoyed with Kubrick with some of the things he was required to do. He used actors instead of stand-ins to sit for hours for monotonous lighting setups. Nicholson told Kubrick, hey, being a perfectionist doesn't really make you perfect. But Kubrick explained that, hey, nobody's nose lit like Jack Nicholson, so he needed to sit there. Kubrick required dozens and dozens of takes for many scenes. Kubrick was known for wanting what's called the CRM, the critical rehearsal moment, something that would be unexpected that would emerge from constant experimentation and repetition. Nicholson groveled that realism, especially his realistic acting, was lost in repeated takes, to which Kubrick retorted that, hey, realism is not always interesting. Through repetition, in Kubrick's mind, actors would lose self-consciousness, and they would hit their marks while saying their lines without seeming like they're still thinking. Duvall later compared the experience of going through multiple takes to being in the 1992 film Groundhog Day, having to repeat the same thing over and over until you finally get it right and can move on. Now, Shelley Duvall did start the production in a very happy mood. She got along great with everybody, at least for a while. Although the heavier aspects of the film started to feel kind of silly to her, and she, instead of evoking shock or fright, she would often get the giggles, having to feign sadness or terror or fright, Kubrick's patience started to wear thin with Duvall, and he ultimately let loose, really, really scaring her. His continued intimidation started to feed her insecurities over time, and making herself cry every day took a psychological toll as well, and it caused dizzy spells to occur for her. She felt her body and her mind started to revolt against her. Kubrick always seemed deferential to Nicholson. He afforded absolutely no sympathy for Duvall, answering a lot of her complaints with nothing great was ever accomplished without suffering. Duvall rationalized later that Kubrick's mercilessness was specifically intentional to try to maintain her feeling of hysteria. Kubrick, though, still started chopping out a lot of Wendy's dialogue because he felt that Duvall was struggling with self-conscious acting. Diane Johnson, who really infused a lot of life into the Wendy character for the screenplay, was disappointed that the rounded Wendy that she had created was now reduced to a woman who just evoked tears and whimpers. Now, scamming Crothers, he had a really hard time with Kubrick's CRM method. He played for mercy, enduring endless takes without any feedback from Kubrick as to what was wrong, that they would have to continue to repeat additional takes to get right. After falling 40 times for Helen's violent death, Nixon eventually stepped in, He could sense that Crothers, who was almost 70 at the time, was not going to hold up very much longer. He implored Kubrick to stop. Luckily, Kubrick's parents happened to be on set at that time, so he was very conscious that they might be disapproving not only of Halloran's murder, but also seeing him cruelly continue making Crothers flinch and fall over and over again. Crothers, by the way, was disappointed because Halloran, at least in the book that he had read, as well as in the screenplay that he was given early on, was the character who ultimately saves the day, but Kubrick never really liked that ending, and so he was experimenting with a lot of different endings through the production, none of which that shows Halloran being the hero. Ultimately, the one that Kubrick shows, Halloran walks into the hotel only to immediately get murdered by Jack with a fire axe, he thought was the wrong way because Halloran not only could shine just like Danny does, but he also knows the background of the hotel's history. He knows that the hotel also shines, and he was telepathically warned by Danny of the danger. It didn't make sense for Halloran to arrive defenselessly and just shout out in order to obviously just get murdered by a raving Jack. Now, script changes were done nightly, by Kubrick. Nicholson just stopped bothering preparing until he received the latest pages the day of filming because he was tired of all the dialogue continuing to change. Kubrick did respect Nicholson's screenwriting experience and would incorporate some of Nicholson's ideas into the story. For instance, there's a a famous scene where Jack lambastes Wendy for interrupting his concentration while he was trying to write. And that came from Nicholson's own memory of yelling at his then-wife, Sandra Knight, for doing the same when he was trying to write screenplays in their home. It was also Nicholson's idea to go into the Colorado lounge, this cavernous lounge in the hotel, and throw a ball against the walls. He did come to regret it after having to perform so many takes of him <laughs> throwing the ball that he felt his arm was going to fall off. One of the pieces of trivia you'll often see associated with uh, with The Shining is that Jack Nicholson ad-libbed the infamous line, here's Johnny. Nicholson did claim in a 1981 interview that he did come up with that line, but later on in 1999 when he was asked about it, he said that that was always in the script. But he did claim in that same interview that he ad-libbed the Big Bad Wolf dialogue from The Three Little Pigs when he was chopping through doors to get Wendy and Danny, although some aspects of that did come from King's book. So that's one of the unfortunate things is that people's stories tend to change over time in trying to do a historical podcast. But the notable thing about Jack playing ball is that Jack is actually playing ball against the walls of the hotel. So he's playing with the hotel instead of with Danny, who's always shown as wanting to play. Danny's always seen entertaining himself. He has all his toys. He's riding around his tricycle. He's in the game room. He's running through the maze. He's watching television. He's apt to really play with somebody. He has nobody to play with. And that's why when the Grady sisters do appear and invite Danny to play with them forever and ever, that's really the hotel's enticement to Danny. Kubrick did decide against the use of a, a scene, supposedly, of Danny in the game room where the machines appear like they're coming to life. He nixed that idea in the end. Meanwhile, instead of Jack, Wendy's the one doing the actual caretaking around the Overlook. Jack is here shown neglecting every responsibility other than trying in vain to write Now, the Grady Sisters, by the way, I I put this on Instagram. The Grady Sisters' look was influenced by Diane Arbus's 1967 picture of identical twins, as well as Kubrick's memory of his own picture of sisters holding hands from the 1940s that he did for Look Magazine. If you want to see those pictures, you can go to my Instagram. I'm I'm quipster on there, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R. Now, Diane Johnson was disappointed that one element of all their screenplays as well as in King's book, was shot but then removed. And that was all allusions to this scrapbook that I mentioned earlier that details all of the hotel's horrific secrets, murders, suicides, fatal mishaps, scandals, and reports of supernatural occurrences. This was a treasure trove of ideas that Jack would use, he thought, for his novel that would symbolize kind of a a fairy tale poison apple a, a tainted gift that would eventually cost jack torrance's soul now despite spending six weeks writing articles replicating them in the style of the archival denver newspapers kubrick cut all references he wanted to keep it ambiguous as to whether the ghosts are real or whether they're just imaginary in the minds of the characters and that did leave a lot of the ghosts' identities that you would find in the scrapbook unexplained in the end. Duvall says that the scariest moment that was chopped out of the final film was one where she, as Wendy, sees the ghost of Halloran's grandmother behind her in a mirror, and she surmised that maybe it was cut because audiences would not recognize her in the end. The scrapbook, by the way, does remain still very briefly visible, although albeit unexplained, near Jack's typewriter on his writing table, in the final cut. Now, as far as the ghosts being real or imagined, you do find out within the course of the film, although it still is ambiguous for some viewers. Johnson posits another possibility that the ghosts could be both real and imagined because they're psychological projections from the characters that take on real physical power. Essentially, the ghosts take on the personas of things that the characters fear or desire in their psyches And they project those things to the characters as a way to either entice them or to scare them. Their central idea for this was William Shakespeare, actually. Shakespeare often used ghosts as manifestations of the inner turmoil of certain characters in his plays. These ghosts usually appear as these characters are going mad. So Jack's mind would be especially conducive to this because he's a writer. He often creates fantasy to try to escape his humdrum life. And so what occurs... Mostly in the overlook is a result of thoughts that are going on in Jack's head, and that's why he feels deja vu when he is in the hotel. Although there are other explanations for that as well that you get to when you get to the ending. So, Jack's lack of surprise, for instance, and his familiarity toward Lloyd, the bartender, that would suggest that he is knowingly imagining somebody from his drinking days. Meanwhile, whenever we see ghosts, we see a mirror's presence, so there's this implication that Jack might be actually talking to himself when he's talking to you. There are some similarities physically between Lloyd and Grady and Jack in terms of how they appear in some respects. Now, fearing that there would be difficulty in actually renting the room in the real-life Timberline Hotel, the management of the hotel did request for Kubrick to change the number to a room that they didn't have, and they suggested 237, 247, or 257. Kubrick chose the first of those, 237. There's a lot of conjecture by the way as to why Kubrick changed the uh, number to 237. This is the most simple explanation is that it was the first of the suggestions of the Timberline Hotel and you can actually find a telegram that the Timberline Hotel sent to Kubrick with those numbers and Kubrick's response to them saying, "Okay, they'll go with 237." But that change from 217 from the novel sparked a thousand different theories that you can find online as well. Now, early scripts had Jack encountering the living corpse of Grady's murdered wife in room 237. But Kubrick added this enticing statuesque nude woman in ghost form that would be revealed in the mirror as a disfigured hag in her physical body. And that scene specifically is what convinces Jack that the spirit world is somehow beautiful and exciting compared to the ugliness of the real world, which may be why not only he wants to stay at the hotel, but also why he wants to secretly not tell anybody about what he saw in that room. Now, Jack's offer to trade his soul for a drink right before he meets Lloyd, that symbolizes Jack's desire to escape his familial responsibilities. He's tired of domestic emasculation, the male insecurity that he feels, artistic impotence, That gives him nothing in life worth writing about. The Faustian bargain that he develops with the hotel eventually extends toward Jack sacrificing himself and his family for eternity at the hotel, just like Grady did. Living in an upper class patriarchal society, hobnobbing with all the best people, as Ullman describes them. Wendy discovers that... All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. That is the only thing that Jack has managed to type on countless pages in various typographical arrangements. Those, by the way, were all typed by Kubrick's secretary, although some of them are photocopies. Outed as a complete failure in Wendy's eyes, Jack now sees no way forward except to regress into the past, the ghosts appealing to Jack's ambitions, inviting him to play forever and ever in a timeless afterlife within the kind of exclusive society he's always longed for where he has the status and importance he feels he's always been denied. Now, the film ends with a wall-mounted picture showing Jack attending this Gatsby-esque party at the Overlook on July 4th, 1921. Notably, July 4th, of course, in America is Independence Day. He's achieved Ultimately, his independence that he's always sought, no longer having to cater to the responsibilities of his work and home life. Reality plays here like a Shakespearean tragedy. Jack's hubris stems from overreaching ambition. But as a ghost, there's that fairy tale ending for Jack. And this really solidifies Kubrick's theme that he has carried through a lot of his movies of humanity's incapacity to learn from the past and of evil endlessly recurring, that we are always going to repeat evil because of our human flaws. Notably, Jack is frozen literally and figuratively at the end in this hotel, and it's built upon an Indian burial ground. That's one thing that Kubrick threw in, even though there are Indian motifs somewhat in King's novel that gave him the inspiration. Additional Indians are said by Ullman to have been massacred during its building. They thus to fight them off. Indian motifs abound within the hotel. And Yet interestingly, when you see the ghosts, no Native Americans are depicted as ghosts. Which further adds to that notion of ghosts being psychological emanations. Johnson claims that the uh, early drafts really did key in more on the Indian motifs as a broader critique of racism, kind of fueling Jack's white man's burden fantasies. You know, the early scripts replaced Jack's choice of a weapon. In the novel, in the King novel, he had a roque mallet that was changed at some point to a baseball bat, which is kind of this American symbol, while Wendy would protect herself with an axe handle, an axe being kind of a, a native American symbol. Wendy is also shown throughout this movie is occasionally wearing kind of Indian style wardrobe, perhaps as a way to connect her as a person who's being oppressed. And she wears a lot of red, you know, red being the color of blood, but also, you know, that ties into those fairy tales. They tried to bring in Red Riding Hood in contrast to Jack's Big Bad Wolf. But Nicholson, who was a former volunteer fireman, he could adeptly handle a fireman's axe. So they decided to give the weapon to Jack to handle through the film. Jack is associated, though, often because of the wolf, as well as a coyote, kind of with canines, because there are several allusions to the Roadrunner cartoons that Danny watches on television, and ultimately, the way that Danny tricks Jack is through a ruse, kind of like Roadrunner would always get the one up on Wile e. Coyote by tricking him in the end. There's a scene of a man kind of in a dog costume, some people think it's a bear costume, performing a sexual act in the lap of a tuxedoed man. That is notably seen by Wendy, and that leaves it kind of implied as a potential projection of her fear in her psyche that Jack, the dog, the canine, being seduced by this life of wealth and privilege, maybe this notion that she fears that he might be a closet homosexual, which is kind of interesting because Jack, when he first gets to the hotel, is shown waiting in the lobby sitting on a couch reading a playgirl which of course has photos of nude men within it there are a lot of theories as to why he's reading a playgirl specifically that issue of playgirl because there's an article mentioning ghosts within it as well as an article about incest in families so people think that uh, Danny's abuse is more than physical that's a theory that's been out there I don't always lend a lot of credence to these things but One thing that's notable, though, as as far as whether Jack is supposed to be represented as the man in the dog costume, the man in dog costume, by the way, that exists actually in Stephen King's book, although it's not really explained in the movie, Kubrick at one point while making this movie was livid because Jack Nicholson claimed that he needed a few days off from acting because he had aggravated this back injury. But instead of being laid up in bed, Kubrick saw... Jack Nicholson was on television at a Wimbledon match, and he had a girl on each side of him, and he just became incensed about this. So Kubrick had this electrician that was working on the set named Bob Tanswell. Tanswell had Nicholson's build, so he told him, put on Jack's jeans and boots, because he was going to shoot the sequence of Jack being dragged into the food storeroom using Tanswell instead of Nicholson as his double. Notably, Kubrick also wanted Tanswell to put on the bear suit or really dog suit and show his bare bottom while his head was in another man's lap. But Tanswell refused, thinking that somehow that would be bad for his reputation. Although it does clearly indicate Kubrick's desire to connect Jack as the man in the dog suit. In fact, I actually have a picture which I might post on the website of Kubrick in his own handwriting in his notes. As he was discussing with Dan Jensen, maybe Jack is dressed as the dog, three exclamation points, when they open the door. That you can find in the Kubrick archives. The delays did prolong the shoot beyond the initial four months allotted. Not only was Nicholson out because of that so-called aggravating his back injury, but also there was this massive fire that was caused by an electrical fault that erupted near the end of principal photography. It destroyed, really, one entire Set and despite only three minor scenes left to film, Kubrick did still have the insurance company pay 2.5 million dollars and take several weeks to rebuild the entire set. Composers Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkin, they only had King's novel to try to score. He had hired them to score the film, and they had to use the book to kind of give them that feeling until they could view some rough footage that was available months later. But Kubrick later opted for pre-existing classical pieces, including the DSRA, at Carlos's recommendation because she felt that this was a composition that evoked death and ghosts and graves, specifically the Berlioz Requiem. And Kubrick became so obsessed with the Berlioz arrangement that he decided to start adding compositions that were reminiscent of that, including Christoph Penderecki, as well as Bella Bartok, and Georgi Ligeti that meshed with those lower and slower tones of the Berlioz. And that came at the cost of the original score that Carlos and Elkin had come up with. Now, The Shining, when it was finally released, it was a modest commercial success. It earned $44 million from its estimated $19 million budget, but... Despite its success, after its New York premiere, Kubrick did remove the two-minute epilogue where Olman visits Wendy and Danny in this California hospital, Ullman revealing that they never found Jack's body and then tossing Danny a tennis ball, which is an implication that somehow maybe Olman masterminded and knew exactly what was going to transpire Kubrick did also, later on, remove another 25 minutes for overseas showings, so gone was Danny's pediatric examination, the hotel tour, a lot of Halloran's explanation of The Shining itself, sequences involving television and Wendy's notion to leave in the snowcat, as well as Halloran's return journey, those were all excised for those cuts, which really, in addition to the scrapbook being cut out, (laughs) made it very confusing for a lot of audiences overseas. Critics did skew negative, very negative sometimes, on The Shining when it was released. They expected something more, maybe something different, maybe something that was actually faithful to King's book, and they weren't getting it here. And it became Kubrick's first film since 1957's Paths of Glory to get no Oscar nominations. And even worse, the nominations it did receive, the Golden Raspberries, the Razzies, in its inaugural year of 1980. Those nominations were given to Kubrick for Worst Director and Shelley Duvall for Worst Actress. So, adding insult to injury, I suppose. Other directors who had worked in the horror genre, specifically David Cronenberg as well as uh, Brian De Palma, they also publicly criticized Kubrick for somehow thinking he was slumming it by doing a horror genre piece. So, So much so that he felt that it was kind of beneath him to go with more traditional horror tropes to make his movie. Like he he was making a horror film, but was trying to avoid at all costs seeming like he was making a horror film. And so they chided him for that. But the most critical when it came to kind of slamming the film was Stephen King himself. He has been critical over many, many years. He accused Kubrick of dismissing effective horror methods as being too easy for him or maybe desiring more to toy with audiences expectations instead of really going in and trying to grab them by their throats like the best horror movies would. King said that Kubrick here was really crafting no more than a technicolor twilight zone, that he would rather emphasize arresting pictures and hollow plot twists than go for the jugular. Kubrick's pragmatism prevented him from embracing the supernatural elements of the story, and so he explored this more as a domestic tragedy instead of being a horror piece. He compared Kubrick's The Shining to like sitting in this luxury vehicle like a Cadillac without an engine. You could get in, you could admire the upholstery, but you're just not going to be able to drive it anywhere. King also especially criticized Nicholson's casting because he was too old to play this former hippie idealist. He was too flamboyant to play an ordinary man. He was too wild-eyed already to think he wasn't already crazy from the moment you see him. King would have preferred that Martin Sheen or John Voigt or Michael Moriarty play Jack instead. King also did not like Shelley Duvall being cast as Wendy because he thought it was too misogynistic a character under Kubrick, only existing really to scream and be stupid. Kubrick did counter somewhat in interviews that his film is more horrific, he feels, emotionally and intellectually, if not in shocks, because he feels that this is a movie about horrors that happen between people, which is more scary, and it's not about the technical ability to make audiences jump in their seats. This is not dark and shadowy. It's intentionally not. The white snow, the well-lit interiors are meant to evoke this feeling that evil is always hiding in plain sight within the people around us every day, which he feels is a much scarier notion than a haunted hotel. Now, over time, the reputation of The Shining obviously has skyrocketed. It's perceived by many as the masterpiece of modern horror that it was presumptuously marketed as back in the day, Nicholson observed that critics always tended to slam Kubrick's films upon release and then proclaim them brilliant just months later. And that certainly has happened with The Shining over time. Now, many people who proclaim The Shining as uh, as a masterpiece today also claim that when the first time that they saw it, they didn't think so highly of it. And that probably is because of expectations, but also because... This is a movie that really reveals more through repeat viewings because of all of the subliminal and subconscious things that are going on that Kubrick put in there. So, as far as grading this on a star scale, which is hard to do because The the Shining still remains a very divisive movie, even though the people who love it are much more vocal about loving it than the people who despise it. For many people, the first time viewing The Shining might be kind of a two-star or two-and-a-half star movie for many, maybe even a three-star, somewhere in that range. Ultimately, this is one of those movies that requires multiple viewings and have a lot more time thinking about it than what you would see in a first-time experience. For those people, The Shining will probably be more of a four-star movie, and I can only speak from experience because I've always regarded, before doing this particular podcast episode, The Shining as an overrated movie for many, 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 many years. But now I can, after spending like all of my waking moments... Outside of work and family time, thinking about this movie, I can see finally, kind of like Wendy at the end of the movie, I can finally see what's going on underneath the surface of the overlook and appreciate The Shining enough to give it four stars out of four. If you have your own thoughts on The Shining that you want to impart, whether you agree with me or disagree with me or feel I should have talked about. There are many things I could have talked about. As I mentioned, this is one of the films that gets written about the most, a lot I've left out in that proverbial scrapbook that I excised from this review. You can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net Q W I P S T E R.net links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, and my Instagram are also there. I really do recommend checking out my Facebook and Instagram because I do post a lot of things that I don't talk about on the show there. You will find more interesting trivia and film history tidbits there. As far as what I'm going to be talking about next, well, I neglected to mention at the beginning what this trilogy of films I'm going to be talking about is. And I'm going to be specifically talking about hotels or motels in films of the 1980s where something evil takes place. So the next film I'm going to be talking about came out the same year as The Shining. And it's a movie I don't anticipate spending four months writing about, not even four weeks so the next episode will come out a lot sooner (laughs) i promise you motel hell from 1980 motel hell i never saw it as a kid but i remember when it came out because there was a farmer named vincent in it so a lot of other kids were teasing me (laughs) because my name is vincent as well so motel hell from 1980 for the next episode of around the world in 80s movies now obviously i didn't talk about a lot of the things that came out after the shining it was a documentary done by vivian kubrick during the making of the shining obviously dr sleep which is based on the stephen king sequel to his book the shining but also incorporates a lot of motifs i will actually cover those things on to the 90s and beyond when i cover dr sleep which will be at some point in the future depending on when it actually does come up so i do encourage you to subscribe to to the 90s and beyond if you want to find out my thoughts on anything that came out to the 90s and beyond, we'll also cover the mini-series of The Shining that Stephen King did based on his original screenplay that he wrote. So you'll be able to check that out there. But until next time, thank you everyone for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies.